Well, welcome to Aureate Christian Show that's exploring the meaning of work from a Christian's perspective. Uh, my name is Stuart Weir. I'm the host of this show. I'm excited today because not only is this our first interview on Aureate, uh, I'm especially excited because I am uh, want to introduce you to my friend, Daryl Cosden. Daryl, welcome to Aureate. Great to have you with us. Thanks. Thanks. Good to be here, Stuart. Well, Daryl, I'm so chuffed that you're my first interview, really, because you're to blame for all of this, ultimately, that the fact that I'm interested in the meaning of work from a Christian perspective, that uh, it works connection or works possible connection to the new heavens and the new earth, uh, all comes from sitting in your classes 20 years ago, almost, in Glasgow, Scotland. Um, Listen, man, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and where you are currently uh, for people tuning in. Hi, yeah. So, uh, as Stuart said, my name is Daryl, and uh, I currently live in Fiji. And my wife and I moved here at the uh, January of 2020, right before the COVID really kicked in. And we are at the Pacific Theological College, and I am part of the theology and ethics department, but also serve as the academic dean. And uh, before anybody says anything about, you know, living in paradise, uh, we don't live at a resort. We don't live at a holiday place. We live in a normal part of the city and um, of Suva, which is the main city on the main island. And um, I wouldn't use the word paradise necessarily. Oh, well, uh, for people tuning in, there's a 13-hour difference. Right now, it's Sunday evening for us in Glasgow, uh, Monday morning in Suva. So that's a bit of a mind-bender, but I love this, and it's such a good uh, connection that, man, I can almost uh, imagine sitting in a room together. So it's just great to have you on the show, man, and um, great to see your face again. Um, so, listen... Way back when, when we started learning about uh, the theology of work, when we started unpicking what, is, what does our earthly work mean anyway? Um, you had a period in your earlier life, some point in your life, where I guess there's a crisis moment involved in that, but there was a, a realization in your life that the way that we understood work, the way that we were talking to each other about work as Christians, something was desperately wrong with it. Can you can you tell us, can you share that story, how that emerged and then how it broke? Yeah, yeah, I can, I can talk about that. So um, I sort of came to faith at a young age and uh, got involved like many people do in their, their youth groups, in their, in their churches. We had a... Um, a pretty good youth pastor at the time when I was probably 13 or 14, just around that age. And um, he, he would say things like, um, you know, give, give your life to Jesus now, and there's no limit to what he can do with you and through you. And, and that, in a way, that sense of vocation, that sense of a deep calling from God to fully give yourself to, to the faith, 
to, to him um, to respond uh, all in kind of thing was, was pretty common in our experience at that time, uh, especially talking to young people. But of course, we framed it in a very, I would say, traditional kind of way. That meant give your life to God now and you can go into the paid vocational ministry when you get older and you won't have all these other headaches and grief and heartaches and breaks and things it'll take you to get there if you don't do it, you know, um, if you don't do this now. And so our heroes were people who left the, the workplace and became ministers. And we wouldn't have to go through all that pain of transitioning from the workplace into ministry. We could go straight into real ministry, you know. And um, so, so you would hear, you would get speakers and you would have heroes that had been professional football players who left and became real Christians. And musicians who left the secular world and became real musicians playing Christian music. And, and any, you know, the examples could just go on and on and on. And you know, we were raised with that. And, and, and so I, I followed that direction myself and went in that way. And yeah, I'm going to go to a Christian college and I'm going to study and I'm going to go into youth ministry and la da la yada, you know, the whole, the whole nine yards. And I did. I, I went to a Christian college and straight out of Christian college, I went to, with my undergraduate, I went to a, a seminary to get my, my MDiv. And about three quarters of the way through, um, had just had a bit of a, a, a crisis of um, what am I doing? What is this about? You know, I'm running kids clubs weekly and, you know, we're telling them about Jesus, but, you know, something just didn't seem, just didn't seem right. And, uh, you know, for at that point, I, I didn't really know what, what to do. Um, I took off a semester from my seminary and packed a backpack and uh, it's a long story, but I bought a ticket to Germany, an airline ticket to Germany and a rail pass and just spent a couple of months wandering around and uh, yeah, wandering around on a sort of journey on a, on a pilgrimage, I guess you would say of a way just to kind of figure out what I really think about these things and do. And the theology of work was nowhere near this conversation. I, I, the words didn't exist. I had no idea um, uh, that there was such a thing. I would, didn't even realize that work necessarily was, was a key question here. Uh, what I knew is I started wondering if there was anything else I should do or could do other than, you know, youth work. Um, just wondering, is this really, is this it? Is this what we do? When I was walking around Europe, I would meet people and they'd ask what I did. I'd say, uh, well, you know, I, 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 I'm a student. And they'd say, well, what do you study? And I didn't want to say anything because I'm just wanting to be here and hang out with my backpack, you know. I'm like, oh, you know, I, I study theology and uh, work with kids. And I'm like, oh, so you'd have some perspective on, and then they would, uh, Gorbachev, Glasnost, you'd have some perspective on uh, uh, 
some nuclear issue that was going on or something. And, and, and my response was, no, but I can parse a Greek verb. You know? uh, and uh, <laughs> I realized I didn't really have anything to say really about daily life. Okay. Mm. So, so my coming into this conversation about work is really coming in to a larger conversation about um, uh, faith's engagement in ordinary, normal daily life, faith in daily life. Some people call it whole life discipleship. Um, that's a common catchphrase these days. But um, it, it was really a, a deeper crisis of what does the Christian faith have to do with here and now? And the ordinary life. You know? I, I was raised in a theological tradition which saw salvation as um, escape from ordinary life. Hmm. So um, it was okay when it was the 70s and it was all the rage, but it was also the tradition that I was in that um, looked forward to this notion of a, um, a rapture, a, 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 a God's going to take his church away and destroy everything, destroy this whole place. And, uh, you know, the way we read Revelation and told the, those narratives. So salvation was always trying to get you away from ordinary life, away from daily life. You know, I know some people have to live in it and they work and they make money and they give it to people like me who are in ministry, you know. Um, but, um you know, I, I guess I had this theological crisis of, wait a minute, if the faith doesn't speak to ordinary people in their daily life and for their daily life, then there's not much to this if it's just, you know, yeah, go, going. Um, so, I mean, that's how, that's in a sense how this journey started. I went back from Europe and back from this wandering around as a, youth hosteling young guy um, with questions and started um, started really probing in my last semester and a bit in seminary and taking different classes and trying to ask different questions but still nobody introduced me to a, a theology of work it wasn't in the vocabulary it wasn't part of the um there was no representation in the seminary that I went to. It just wasn't a thing. Um, now, how I actually got into a theology of work, I'll try to make that part of the story a little shorter, maybe. Um, but uh, there was a, a businessman, a rather important and famous businessman in America, who uh, two of them, actually. One of them was the number two guy at Walmart. And the other was the um, CEO of a place called Biz uh, Service Master, uh, which I've done a little bit of writing on. And there's a really interesting book about, uh, about the, the theology of Service Master as a, as a Fortune 500 company uh, by Al Ayersman that, that people might want to look up. It's a recent book, but we worked on some of the research together. But uh, the, the, the CEO, Bill Pollard, and, and another guy who, who was from, from Walmart had gone into the Soviet Union uh, to scout things out. This was at the time when things were changing. And they came back and talked to a mission agency that I became had become affiliated with and ended up going with. 
and saying we need to do ministry differently in Russia because there are real concrete needs of people coming out of um, of this period of time of uh, the Soviet period. We, we need people with um, entrepreneurial mindset, with with uh, with business skills, but we also need people with deep ethics. And we, we need to go in there in a kind of holistic way. And I guess you would you would use the language today, um, a sort of business's mission mindset. Yeah. Although we weren't even using the language at the time. This was the uh, end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. And uh, I didn't know what that really meant, but I knew it, it resonated and rung a bell. And at that, that point, I, I went in as, as a team leader and we uh, kind of led a project where we were trying to set some of this uh, vision into place. And we, we had all sorts of grandiose visions of how we were going to be something called the International Service Centers. And we were going to teach basic business skills, basic computing skills. Remember, this is 1991. So, um, you know. Most people were still working in DOS, for your listeners who were old enough to remember what that is. <laughs> um, but, 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 but none of it worked, um, to be honest, uh, for a host of reasons. We hadn't calculated the mafia and the rise of the mafia in this. We, we, we hadn't calculated, more importantly, how not ready the church was to actually engage culture, huh. to... Um, to equip laity, the normal believing ordinary person for a daily life in the marketplace, in the public sphere, in the workplace. Uh, it was very much, and you understand because of communism, but it was very much an escapism and an escape into the institutional church, and which was necessary, I'm not putting it down, it was necessary for survival at that point in time there. But that, plus a certain kind of escapist theology, created a, a real crisis. And to be honest, I didn't know how to address it. But I knew the answer wasn't, at that point, to try to engage culture. The answer was to try to engage the church so that it could engage culture. Because otherwise, you do these individual little projects. and uh, But there's no community of of practice, no community of faith to nurture, support, and encourage. So my focus became, I guess you'd say, seminary teaching at that point. But I still didn't know what I was looking for. It was only in the in one of the summers, maybe it was 93, maybe it was 94, I don't remember exactly. But I had a friend who um, had been at Regent College, had been the principal or president at Regent College in Vancouver, who was offering a summer intensive study course in Austria at a beautiful castle at Schloss Mittersilk. Uh, and it was titled A Theology of Work. And I'm like, I have no idea what that word means. I have no <laughs> idea what that phrase means. But what I know is that's what I'm looking for. I don't even know what it is. I don't even know what it would mean. I couldn't give you a paragraph or a sentence description. Uh, and, and, and it's an odd phrase, theology of work, you know, and everybody says theology of works, you mean like good works versus not good works and grace? No, 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 no. This is about ordinary daily life and work. And I'm like, I have no idea what they're talking about, <laughs> but I'm absolutely convinced this is what we need. Yeah. Wow. 
and it was. And after that summer and going to three weeks and encountering Mitislav Volk's book, Work in the Spirit, and, and going through this process, I realized that's it. Within a year, year and a half, whatever it was, I was in uh, St. Andrews starting a PhD saying, this is what I want to study because I don't really know what all this means or is. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's such a fascinating journey, you know, combining hunches that something's not right, uh, pursuing, probing, trying to find some ways forward, some answers where, you know, the little trying to find the breadcrumbs, but it's not like a straight line of breadcrumbs. You know, it's, it's a messy, slow, infuriating, gradual process that you, you've gone through that, that. It's just fascinating to hear that again after all these years. Um, so yes, talk there, you know, there, there, there was, there had always been within the Christian church in America anyway, a, a sort of small voice, maybe even a minority voice about ministry and daily life and an emphasis on the laity. Mm. And there were people who, who were talking about work, usually in a sort of um, working class, blue collar, you know, support the worker, um, maybe pro unions or something like that. Yeah. But it just didn't make its way through the churches and it certainly wasn't part of the popular imagination of, of american christianity i don't want to make it sound like there was nothing there there was no. something yeah nobody could find it unless yeah. you happen to be lucky enough to be a part of that little group of denominations that talked about these things you, you yeah. never encountered any of this it's the same kind of thing actually in the uk as i've gone back and tried to find uh voices voices uh there they are there but man alive are they hard to find and do they disappear into dusty bookshelves that nobody's come across this flyer or this pamphlet or this small book or this tour of um speaking engagements around multiple conventions you know they get consigned to the history books pretty fast in the uk as well and it's uh, guess it always needs a fresh generation to to push these things with the, the issues of the day and etc. And, and Stuart, I think it's it's also as long as some of these things remain boutique, as we like to call, you know, a boutique fashion. Right. So it's there, but it's just a small little shop off the edge of the high street. You know, it's 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 not integrated into every shop all the way down the street, right? Yeah. Um, and we're really good at that. We come up with something and it becomes a fad or it becomes something that everybody knows we can't be against, but then we turn it into a little side movement and we feel good. Well, hey, it's, we've done this, we've covered this. But you know, the average person spends most, the average adult spends the vast majority of their daily life doing a few things, working, sleeping, eating and although there's a little theological reflection on eating now there's a little bit more on work hardly any theological reflection on sleep other and rest other than some sabbath work yeah but the very things that we spend all of our time doing are relegated to the 
to the small little boutique shop rather than at the heart and center of what it is to live the Christian faith in the church. And I'm not saying that other things aren't important too, but uh, Robert Bella, sociologist from the University of California, you know, decades ago, you know, said that his sociological research that, that work is the linchpin that pulls together things like justice and social justice mm -hmm. and economics and um, uh, leisure and leisure time and how we spend it. I mean, in a sense, work is the abstract common denominator to which all the practical things fit. We talk about the practical things and the individual things about racial justice, which is absolutely important about uh, economic justice, all these things. Um, and they're absolutely vital, but they all take place in a workplace somewhere. They all happen concretely in a workplace, whether that's the public sphere of government or the marketplace or, or, or a hospital, you know, yeah. or, um, a mining operation or a fishing village, uh, you know? Yeah. So that ordinary daily life, the non-escapism of this world, the being the very part of this world, to live a life of faith following Jesus in the world, part of the earth, wholly in the earth, as fully as possible, uh, if we think about, first of all, the global crash of 078 with the Lehman's Brothers sort of triggering that, Fred the Shred and RBS here in Scotland being a huge part of that injustice. And then again with this global pandemic and the havoc that's wreaking with mass unemployment, uh, really uh, university students having massive difficulties going from higher education into, into a job. I wonder if we can talk a little bit about how disruptive our world is and um, how can people find meaningful work or just meaning in this disrupted world we find ourselves in? Because you, you've spoken about that a fair bit over the last few years. What are some of your insights, Daryl? Yeah, I think, I think, I think, to enter into the conversation to, and, and eventually to get to some meaningful com theological conversations, we've got to enter right where we are. And, and the word disruption is a word I started using because of my own personal experience. I started using the word in uh, 2017 before the pandemic, but obviously after the economic crisis that's another story we can explore in another day my own um, experience through through that but but let's just say i uh, i experienced the disruption myself hmm. i experienced the uh the, the the existential the traumatic crisis and trauma that um forced unemployment and a changing workplace and a changing economics brains and um the, the crisis is on multiple levels obviously there's the um for, especially for those living closer to the margins those living um on the edge of 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 existence if you will the obvious issue there is um survival 
yeah. physical, economic survival, right? Um, but to reduce the crisis simply to economic survival is also to reduce work to nothing more than economic necessity, economic tool. And I think what people across the board is, are finding, not just Christians, I'm talking about um, sociology, psychology, all the, the other disciplines that look at the human person yeah. um, and the human person in their environment. Uh, so even environmentalism. I think what we're finding and, and what I certainly discovered theologically, but what we know is true just through social sciences, that work is about more than simply survival. It, it is about survival. It's always about survival. And if you don't have an income, you know that. And if you're on the margins and, and you're poor and you're close to just not making it, that becomes the dominant and important thing, of course. But there's also this deeper um, relationship between the work and your identity and who you are. Now, some people who are fortunate enough to have, have wonderful jobs and wonderful careers and something that, that we might call in our culture and society and language a vocation, if you will, um, understand that. Not everybody has that working experience. Some people do. They don't really like what they do. They don't really enjoy it all the time, but they do it and, and it becomes part of their life. And even if they don't invest their identity into it, they invest their life into it. So yeah. even if, you know, somebody says, I am a doctor, I am a teacher, that's saying something more than just, I go to work and teach. I go to work and practice medicine. Yeah. You identify with your work, but that's sort of the higher levels of, of work in terms of um, what we would call, you know, a professional expertise and training and things. But the, the ordinary work where it, it's employment okay and it's not much more than that somebody might not say i am a such and such but they do it and they do it day in and out and the habits and the practices of this other thing that may not be at the center of their identity but it's clearly bound up with their identity yeah and then all of a sudden that is ripped out from under you that is taken away because of, um, now we can explore all sorts of things, uh, the economics and the economic trends of, 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 of global geopolitical economics. Uh, uh, we could talk about um, you know, neoliberalism, globalization, all those things. But for whatever reason, and, and I actually think that, that technology is, is driving a lot of that. That's another conversation as well. Yeah. But when that becomes ripped away from a person and it becomes, it, your human identity is, is disrupted. It's, it becomes, um, if not destroyed, crushed in some way and broken. Yeah, And I, I do think we need to think long and, and hard about all of this. Um, now, I, I've heard some people say, oh, yeah, you know, 
white privilege, rich white guy problems, existential angst because your work uh, is taken away from you. And you know that I'm not going to deny there's all sorts of truth to that living in a, a country of re relative wealth and um, certainly having had those. But even people who don't identify in that way and who that's not their experience have experienced the disruption in profound and painful ways. Um, you know, the book's Hillbilly Elegy uh, uh, in, in America and, and the study of the whole rise of the, um, what we call the Trumpeters, you know, the Trump supporting working class um, white community often, but not exclusively. Mm. Uh, the angst and the fear that has risen because um, of the death of a certain economic dream in the workplace and looking for more extreme political yes. um, answers. I know that some of that angst and some of that's played out in UK politics as well. Sure. Right? Well, big time. Um, big it's, time. it's not unique. Uh, so, so I don't want to reduce work to an existential dynamic either. But just like the economic dynamic, if you leave that out, if you don't understand the way that, that work and the human person work and the human psyche uh, and what we do and who we are, how they that interplay and that relationship works, if you don't grasp that, um, you're gonna have a hard time addressing the issue, whether that's as a government or as a church. A government will throw money at it and programs at it often to try to you know, alleviate poverty and get people back to work, but often fail to understand that deeper psychological, existential, uh, I'll call it spiritual dynamic. And, um, and churches, many of them almost try to do aid and help projects amongst the poor where they're just sort of mimicking a typical government uh, you, know, you work in this sector you, you know better than I do but uh, you know sometimes helping hurts sometimes charity is the worst thing you can do yeah. not in a crisis situation where you absolutely need it quickly but as a long-term systemic thing and so I really think that as Christians we, we, we need to have a theology and, and that might sound like a big highfalutin word, but we need to have a set of beliefs and a set of ways that we live and a set of things that we preach about, that we pray about, that we think about, that we talk about, that we sing about when we're together, that, that has something to say into this situation. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we actually do but our sort of Western contextualization of the gospel and what we think salvation is um, because of, our, of a history of, of how we've appropriated and, and contextualized the biblical message and the theological resources that we have has sort of sometimes worked against that vision and taught the opposite unintentionally. Uh, 
But if we're going to, as a, as a faith community, address those of us who are experiencing this crisis um, and to do so in a way that's much bigger than simply a single faceted, either economic, either existential, but in a holistic way, we're going to have to seriously um, go back to square roots and say, what do we think the gospel is? Mm. What do we think salvation means? Um, what do we think matters yeah. to God and for eternity? Yeah, no, absolutely. And even just that last thing you said, for a lot of followers of Jesus in the church in Scotland and the UK, work, your daily work, does not in any way integrate into the word and concept, the gospel. It's that little boutique around the corner you mentioned earlier. And so, uh, yeah, get, getting, enabling, helping people to understand why work is even, should be considered within the realms of the gospel in any way, shape or form is a huge <laughs> undertaking. Man, you, I remember uh, some of the pain of that in seminary myself, just trying to understand that, you know, why, why on earth is the, are those two things in the same conversation? <laughs> yeah, because we typically think the gospel is the good news of the soul going to heaven when you die. Right. And that's what it really comes down to. Um, we have come to understand the good news of Jesus, not, you know, and I'm going to call it a contextualization because it is. It, it really is taking certain strands and certain emphases and certain things out of scripture and then engaging with our existential crisis and angst of the day and, and coming up with a formulation um, that, you know, we can talk about the Middle Ages, we can talk about what it was like to go through pandemics and plagues before where we didn't have medical resources we do today, where thousands upon thousands died. And so the focus clearly would become when you have, you know, high mortality rates of children and, and, and all of these things you know, would, would become, is this all there is? Is this what life is about? No, life has to be more. There has to be life after death. And um, again, then we take the resurrection of Jesus and our promised resurrections to the new creation, which is clearly New Testament, right? Right. And um, then we start talking about that in terms of life after death and that whole question that the medieval church was wrestling with uh, what happens to the soul when you die and while you're waiting for the resurrection, this whole intermediate state question of um, is there a purgatory? Is there not? You know, you're, you know, all those debates. Uh, before you know it, we have a vision of salvation that reads like it came out of Plato um, where the soul is struggling to get out of the body and be released and go back to its heaven. And so you ask the average Christian in the church, tell me what is salvation? It's Jesus died for me so that when I die, my soul can go to heaven. 
And we say, well, don't you guys believe in and practice Easter in your church? Oh, yeah, the resurrection. And I, for decades, for two, two plus decades, go into a class and ask students, tell me your, your understanding of salvation. And I get this soul escaping the body, life, you know, and, and, and going to heaven. And I go, great. I said, does your church practice Easter? Oh, yeah. So what do the two have to do with each other? And they look at me dumbfounded. Easter? Salvation? Yeah, of course they have something to do with each other. What is it? Uh... And so that, that just tells you that something's gone wrong with our doctrine of mm -hmm. salvation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I grew up with that escapism where, where it was that vision, it was that story, it was that narrative, soul getting away and going to heaven when you die, and that's all that matters because everything here is just going to be destroyed and burned up and and, and go to hell, you know. Uh, and and oh, so getting getting the soul to heaven and my soul and getting every telling everybody else and getting their souls to heaven, and that becomes the focus. So what work? Why you know to quote D.L. Moody, why polish the brass handles on a sinking ship, man? You know, yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't make sense. And so that, that story has shaped our faith communities for so long. Uh, and, and then when I had my sort of theological crisis, one of many, I should add, but when I had that, that one that I've discussed today, uh, and um, I started emphasizing life here, life now, life in this world. But then, to be honest with you, I didn't know what to do with eternity, mm. right? Because typically, like in my world, the conservative churches and the evangelical churches that identified evangelical talked about going to heaven. And what we call the mainline, what you might call the high street or the traditional denomination churches, um, had already made this switch. And all they could talk about was social action and 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 and. and here and you know the temptation is to go from the one place when you realize that's kind of broken and to go to the other place so people come to evangelical faith from the historic churches and get all excited about the soul going to heaven and people get to get disgruntled with the evangelical churches and they get all into social justice and social action and i knew it's i knew something if those two things don't go together, and, and you know, okay, we've been saying it for decades. Oh, yeah, they're two sides of the same coin, the gospel and social action. I'm like, no, that's still dualistic because it, it implies there's gospel and there's social action. So there has to be some deeper connection where what you do, what we're doing daily now and eternity are somehow integrally connected integrate not a dualistic two sides of a coin but hmm. somehow the same thing while yeah. being different if you will yeah um somehow those two things have to not be different somehow those things have to theologically fit together and in a sense, that's become, that became, I guess you would say, up to this point anyway, my life's work. Yeah. How, how do you pull those, um, 
okay, to use the big fancy theological word, eschatology, or um, the doctrine of God's eternal purposes for the creation, and the humdrum, ordinary, daily, get up, go to work, come home, work some more around the house, go to sleep, get up, you know, that, that daily, ordinary life and routine. Yeah. If those two things, you know, if those two things don't go together in some kind of a way, and, and they actually do, and that was my sort of exciting theological discovery for myself that made the difference in a, and made what I call a theology of work possible, that um, not only does your work matter to God, but your work matters to and for eternity in some way. Huh. And that has to, that for me had to go back to a rethinking of the resurrection of the dead and Jesus's resurrection body and how the New Testament itself ties that into the notions of the first fruits of all of creation and how the biblical vision I hate to use the word biblical because the Bible is such a beautiful breadth of, of visions, but how some sort of a common thread within scripture points us towards the new creation of the new heavens and the new earth, that Jesus himself in his life, death, and resurrection embodies, and that we expect as well, all of that has to play into some picture of um, pulling together Time and eternity. Yeah. Heaven and earth. Work and salvation. Yeah. Which absolutely makes sense then if you understand that work is caught up and has a purpose, if this creation has a purpose, has a goal, and our work on it is part of that earth, uh, the human, the story of human history as part of that earth that puts an imprint on it, uh, the disruption, the dislocation, the, the crises that people are facing and have faced over the last 12, 13 years, not just economically, existentially. Um, uh, this is where good news can really matter, right? If, if uh, we understand that this war earth matters what we do matter if this is going somewhere this this project earth if you like if god has some kind of oversight over it then what we're doing now the kind of projects that we can find ourselves involved in even just being able to survive if that's the, the status that you're in all has some integrative purpose into where this is all going yeah, and, and I do think, though, I mean, what this disruptive crisis of the last decade or so has taught us is that um, we have to be very careful not to let our own cultural obsessions uh, totally dictate and, and, and drive this uh, in our theological thinking. So, for example, you know, we often talk about how driven our Western cultures and societies are, how our socioeconomic um, insatiable drive for more 
and for building uh, is fundamental to who we are, but we also know, as as a Western culture, but we also know that the workaholism and the, um, some of what we do in the, a lot of what we do in the workplace destroys creation around us. Uh, So we have to, we have to keep in mind that, that we, unlike we in the West, unlike other global cultural expressions, um, maybe have some great vision toward, you know, projects and growth and development and all this stuff, but that that also has a potential um, ideological downside to it, where we destroy ourselves and destroy each other. So for some people, a theology of work with meaning and purpose becomes a psychosis, a, um, a compulsion, an unhealthy thing which then when it becomes disrupted and ripped away from you, then you have a different kind of existential crisis and a different kind of crisis. Um, We have a trouble, you know, to go back to the Beatles, uh, we have a trouble letting it be. And uh, we have a, we have a, we have trouble saying that there is worth and value to a person if they aren't, contributing yes productively and 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 constructively and and that shows up in our politics that sort of meritocracy is part of that but it's a much bigger phenomenon and so even at the same time that we recognize that our work can that somehow god will catch it up and transform it in the new creation and and that it'll become uh somehow a part just like jesus's body is a part of eternity uh that our bodily existence and our normal everyday ordinary existence and activities and things become caught up we have to be very careful not to let that become ideological and and say and start valuing people and valuing cultures uh in that capacity and we need to see the downside the underside of some of the things that we've done Mm. uh, ecologically but also i'm going to bring it back the existential too part of the uh my own crisis and problems have have in 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 disruption have revolved around um why am i here if i can't contribute if i'm not contributing if i don't if i'm not living into my vocation uh in the way that i think is productive and and possible so so we have two very important things here on one hand we need to motivate the the gospel the church needs to have a gospel that motivates people to see value and meaning in what they do but at the same time uh doesn't fall into the trap of reducing people to that so that if disruption comes uh we become so we, we, we've treated people like such a cog in a machine that um they uh become reduced in another kind of way yeah if that makes sense yeah absolutely and so this picture of the resurrected jesus uh he he bears on his body marks of his own execution. It's a 
you know, it's become so sanitized when we hear it year on year and year out every time we read it it's, it's so difficult to take the impact of that isn't it um but in its fullness but that is a powerful theological motivator for us for for people who are crushed people who are maimed marred injured in any which way um at the moment through disruption through dislocation through crisis um uh yeah there's this notion of the hope of uh, if, if jesus's wounds can be healed but in a sense their glory is in their continued but healed presence within his physical body and if Jesus really is the firstborn of creation, and, and, and we as humans experience his resurrection, but then the whole of creation, whole of the physical creation is caught up in the transformation, then that doesn't justify the violence done to Jesus's body. Mm. Yeah. That doesn't justify our violence in the sense of justification, meaning make it okay but it does promise that in the end all will be well god will heal god will transform but and i mean for some people that hope is enough i yeah. hope that regardless of what happens now it will be put to right at the end and, and I say, I, in, in some sense, that is the truth for all of us. And for some people, that is enough to help them endure whatever here and now. Hmm. Yeah. But again, that can become a sort of Marx opium for the masses to justify injustice and oppression now. Yeah. So, so we have to have a, a, a faith that, that because of that hope energizes to live differently now. I'll tell you. Work and working is going to look very different over the next half century to century uh, than it has since the Industrial Revolution. I mean, I mean, right, the rise of, there's no clear breaks in history, but clearly you, Marx and Engels examined this phenomenon of the rise of the factory and the rise of industrialization where people become um, simply hired. They're not invested in their life the way a farmer is or the way a craftsman is, but they just become hired for this many hours a day. It's not their responsibility. It's, they don't own it. It's not their responsibility. They just simply go in, work, and leave, and they get remunerated and paid for their time, which sounds like in many, and is in many ways a great thing, but it can also disconnect and alienate you from from that work so that um the investment of your life is simply about selling yourself which is a form of indentured servant bond servant a sense of slavery if you will mm -hmm. but we've come but we've had a couple of few centuries now to well, at least a century two centuries now of, of coming to grips with that way of working and trying to make sense out of it and, you know 
look at those TV shows like The Office and others and, uh, and, and, and the whole rise of living for the weekend. Yeah. And with a whole other set of conversations. But, but we have navigated work equals employment. Work equals a wage that someone, government, uh, business pays you. And unless you're the business owner or whatever, you know. But I think we're going back. I think that's going to change radically with uh, being able to work online, the rise of gig economies, the rise of technology, which makes some things possible um, for working and yet destroys sectors and jobs by the mass. Um, yeah. Just like, the, you know, wh wh where did all the blacksmiths go? Well, we invented cars and you don't need to have the same blacksmiths and wagon wheel makers and things, you know, so... Uh, what economists call creative destruction, but we've just never seen it in history at this accelerated pace for this extended of a long time. Um, things would come in cycles. Creative destruction would come in cycles. Now creative destruction is the present ongoing new normal reality. And you know, when you're young, like my kids are in their twenties, they, they, have, they have an entrepreneurial spirit and a creativity about creating their own gigs slash businesses slash workways that, that those of us of my generation can hardly, it, it mortifies us to think about. Yeah. You know, when you're young and you have the energy, you do that. But when you get a little bit older, not everybody's like that. So what does that mean for a culture? in a society when um, the young and the energetic and those who are more entrepreneurial and creatively minded or lucky enough to have that kind of education can survive. But older people or just people who don't have that kind of drive can't, you know, there's all these huge questions for the future that um, sadly, I don't think Christians are at the forefront Sadly, I know that Christians are not at the forefront of thinking about. And if we're not thinking about it, we're not preparing for it. So our theology isn't prepared for it. Our practice isn't prepared for it. Our structures aren't prepared for it. And neither are the governments, which we clearly see. Yeah. Um, this will be a, a, the same kind of revolution that the industrial revolution was. But we're not... We're not ready for it. And uh, there are all sorts of people talking about it, writing about it, but those are the certain sociologists, certain journalists, certain people who are studying and exploring this. And I just hate the fact that it'll probably be that after they have it all figured out, then the church will come along and say, oh, wait a minute, what is it? What are we talking about? You know. Oh, I know. Man, you've, you've mentioned so many different avenues by which to explore things that are held in tension, things that have not been addressed, things that are moving so fast. I could talk to you all evening and yet yeah, it's your morning. <laughs> um, listen, we, we're fast running out of time here, but I want to point our listeners to um, your two books, Daryl. You've got two uh, really good books that I want to point people to. The first one that came out was one that you developed from your PhD called A Theology of Work, which is a real 
brilliant piece of academic writing connecting work to the new heavens and the new earth that was published by Paternoster, which is now Authentic Media. You can Google it and find it dead easily, and I would really highly recommend that. Read that on a Greek island once when I was on holiday. And then your follow-up book, although it's not a follow-up like a part two to the first book, is called A Heavenly Good of Earthly Work. And this book is probably written for the thinking Christian, uh, not necessarily in an academic sense, which does a lot of biblical work as well as ethical work as well as raising lots of these questions around the muddled nature of our thinking around work. And is a real great book as well by Paternoster, which again is now Authentic Media and in the States is Hendrickson Publishers too. Listen, get your hands on these folks. They're just such good books for stimulus to help you pursue your understanding of work. And you can get them and Amazon or eBooks or wherever you shop, uh, Eden. So, um, Daryl, thank you so much for carving out some time from the start of your day at the end of mine. Um, it's just been great to hear your musings and your bringing together of themes and, and marrying together things that are held in tension again, but in a new way from the last time I heard you because all these years have passed since... I heard you speak last. It's just been fab having you on the show, man. 